Amen. Kids, ages three and four and kindergartners, you can make your way to the back. For the rest of us this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, this is our third week. We're studying this short letter of Paul together. Uh, and uh, in this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. But as we have in the pe- previous weeks, we're going to read all of chapter 1 together this morning, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. As the kids are making their way to the back, um, and as you're turning in your Bible, I want to highlight something for you on the back table back there where the extra Bibles are. You're going to see uh, these brochures back there. Well, they're like, they look like a brochure, but this is actually a, a reading plan, a Bible reading plan for uh, the second half of 2023 and the first half of 2024. This Bible reading plan, uh, it's called To the Word. This is something that we've done as a congregation together on a handful of, a handful of years. Uh, we've promoted it at various levels. This year, I want to push it hard. Um, it's, it's an aggressive Bible reading plan. It gets you through the Bible uh, beginning on Labor Day, and then we end up sort of around the end of the academic year in, in May at some point. So you're going to read through the entire Bible uh, in about nine months. So uh, pick one of these up. And then something else I want to highlight with these is that throughout the week, our goal then is to create some space, whether it be over a lunch hour or even on Sunday morning before congregational worship, um, that, that information is forthcoming. But we are going to have just some time where you can get together with other believers um, dur- during the week and, and to look at uh, what you read together. Not all of it, but just a little bit of it together, uh, what what the Lord was doing in your heart through what you read in the Bible reading plan this week. And the beauty of this plan, too, is it is aggressive, and it does get you uh, all the way through the Bible if you stay up to date. But the purpose of the plan as well is to keep you reading the Bible, not keep you reading all of the Bible. And what I mean by that is that if you miss a day, you just go to the next day. You don't go back and try and catch up. There are catch-up days built in. Um, on the Lord's Day, there is no reading. But, uh, but you just go to that next day, and you just read what's in front of you for that day. And so if you're someone who's tried Bible reading plans on a handful of occasions in the past, and you get through that first month, and you're feeling strong, and then you get to week five, and then you totally drop off because something unexpected happened in your life, that's me. I'm sure that's some of you as well. Um, then this just says, just keep going. Don't stop. Just pick the next day, the day that you're on. All of the dates are assigned in this brochure, um, and then you you just keep going. And even if you only read one chapter out of the assigned 30-some chapters for that week, um, you can then come to and speak with other believers about what you read together in Scripture. So would you please pick one of these up and consider doing this with us as a church? I think a couple of years ago, we, we were really... We were really on track together, uh, and we spent a lot of time in our community groups and in other, uh, in other places. We want to give that a little bit of structure. We spent a lot of time talking about Scripture together, and that was really fruitful, I think, for our congregation. So we want to move that direction again this year. Pick one of these up, look it over, um, and, uh, and let, let's read the, the Bible together through the Bible this year, uh, this academic year. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 10. We're going to focus our time together on verses 6 through 8 this morning. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Thessalonica, 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in, the, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Bible answers many, many questions for us about life. Uh, but sometimes, as people, something that we do is ask questions that the Bible may answer, but doesn't spend a lot of time uh, or give a lot of text to. If you spent time talking with someone who doesn't believe that there is a God, someone who would consider themselves an atheist or, uh, or even maybe agnostic, they're not sure if there's a God, you may have heard the question asked, if God exists then why is there pain and suffering in the world? This is a question that many people in uh, the 21st century have asked uh, over and over and over again. And about 15 or 20 years ago, this was the primary uh, argument of a group who referred to themselves as the New Atheists. Names like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, I'm sure maybe some of you have heard of those people who decided that the atrocities committed by humanity against humanity uh, were definitive proof that there was or there is no God. They would ask something like, if God truly exists, then why doesn't he stop these horrible acts? And they would assume that because there's pain and because there's suffering, because there's affliction, because there's tribulation, because people experience trials on incredibly intense levels, that there is no God because he would simply step in and stop it if there was. Of course, this doesn't necessarily make sense because Hitchens and Dawkins and others in their camp determined that they were the absolute definers of what is good and what is true and what is acceptable in the universe, meaning that they positioned themselves first and foremost as gods uh, instead, of, instead of actually asking themselves the question. They said, there is no God and yet we are ourselves gods. But for our purposes this morning, there's a fundamental problem with that question. If God exists, why is there suffering and pain in the world? And the fundamental problem with that question is that uh, the biblical authors aren't terribly concerned with that. There's not a lot of 
time given to the question, why does it exist? Now, the Bible does answer that question. The Bible does answer why pain and suffering exist in the world. But after the third chapter in Genesis, it's rarely, if ever, considered again. Rather, what the biblical authors are primarily concerned about through all of Scripture is the response of God's people to suffering and pain in their lives. Rather than being concerned primarily with the existence, why does this exist, the biblical authors focus most of their time and energy on right responses to pain and suffering in their lives. And in this passage this morning, in verses 6 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see, that the proof of, we see the proof of God's work in the lives of the Thessalonians. It isn't somehow that they avoided suffering, but rather, but rather that in the midst of suffering, the Thessalonians, Paul says, have the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we learn about Paul and Silas as Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians. He's in Corinth, south of Thessalonica. And he, uh, we actually learn about how the, the church in Thessalonica got planted uh, by Paul and by Silas. And we learn about that in Acts chapter 17. Over the course of three weeks, when Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, they preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners so that they might be forgiven and have eternal life through him. They preached that gospel in the Jewish synagogue. And during those three weeks, some Jews came to faith and then were told that a great deal, a great number of Gentile Greeks came to faith as well. The Jews, the Jews who were not converted, the Jewish religious establishment there in Thessalonica, became jealous of Paul and Silas, and so they stirred up a mob, and they brought many believers before the city authorities, citing the Christians' claims that Jesus is Lord. Now again, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. This is a Roman province a Roman province heavily under the control of Rome. And so, as being a Roman province, they would require each and every individual to swear allegiance to Caesar. But the Christians realized very quickly when they were converted to Christianity, whether being a Jew formally or a Greek, that they must swear allegiance not to Caesar, but to Jesus. They, op- they acted in opposition to the decree of Caesar that he himself was Lord. And so the city uh, authorities show up and they fine all of the Christians who are there financially. And in the meantime, they let them go. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas, under the cover of darkness at nighttime, are smuggled out of Thessalonica. The Thessalonians, we're told here in this Uh, in these verses, they received the word. If you look at the second half of verse six, they received the word in much affliction. The word came to them and immediately they were persecuted for it, for receiving it, for being converted, for swearing allegiance to Jesus Christ and not to Caesar. They immediately 
received persecution. Their lives were turned upside down. A day earlier, they hadn't any mobs at their door, and now they have mobs at their door. Accusations of treason. Confiscation of their, final, their financial resources. But in the midst of this affliction, in the midst of this persecution, which would become ongoing, the Thessalonians continued, we're told, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. So there are three things here in this text, these three verses this morning, 6, 7, and 8 in First Thessalonians, that are going to guide our time together. Three words that start with R. Hopefully, we, hopefully they're memorable. Maybe not. The first word is receiving. The second is resembling. And the final word is representing. And these three ideas are the progression of the Thessalonians' response to the suffering they faced, first to the word of God, and then the suffering that they faced. So let's take these in turn together this morning. Look with me at verse 6. Again, right in the middle, that phrase, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The first word is receiving. The foundational truth, the foundational truth about the Thessalonians in this passage is that they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the bedrock of these three verses. That's the foundation. If, we're gonna, if we, Paul's going to build a house on something in these three verses, this is the foundation. The foundational truth is that they received the word in much affliction and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. When Paul and Silas preached the gospel, and the Thessalonians believed the gospel, they were simultaneously met with suffering. And when they were met with suffering, what marked their lives? Again, what marked their lives when they were met with suffering? Was it questions about the legitimacy of the, the existence of God? No, we're told by Paul it was the joy of the Holy Spirit. That was the marker of their lives. And remember in verse 5, last week, that the gospel came to the Thessalonians. Look back up the page. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, the gospel came to them not only in word, but in the power, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. The gospel came to the Thessalonians. They received new life in Christ as the Holy Spirit accompanied the gospel message that Paul and Silas preached. Not just words, but words accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit that brought new life into the lives of the Thessalonians so that they might bear witness to what God had done for them in Jesus Christ. And now we learn that the Holy Spirit also brought the Thessalonians joy. So it brings them new life, they're immediately met with affliction because they declare that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And then the Holy Spirit brings joy in the midst of the affliction. 
joy in the midst of suffering is spoken of over and over and over again in the New Testament. And again, this is why I believe firmly that the, the, God, or the writers of Scripture were not primarily concerned about the existence of suffering and pain in the world, but the Christian's response or the, the people of God and how they respond to suffering in their lives. Let me just give you four quick examples from the New Testament. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and you utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 writes, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James, in James 1, 2, and 3, writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the detested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't be deceived. Much of so-called Christian teaching in our world tells you that you are meant to or dismisses the idea that Christians can or will suffer. That there's no way that you should, if God is for you, that you should ever experience any kind of affliction or suffering in this life. But a quick look at these four passages and the passage that we're considering together this morning paints a very, very different picture. Sometimes this modern Christian teaching, so-called, is explicit and sometimes it's implicit. We like to resist the idea that difficulty or suffering can or will happen. But Scripture is clear, and it is clear over and over and over and over again, that suffering in the life of the believer exists and is designed to bring about fruit in us. Steadfastness in the four passages that we just looked at Some things that it produces in us are steadfastness, character, endurance, hope. These are the qualities that mark the life of a mature Christian. We should not make the mistake of thinking that those who have suffered in their Christian Christian lives a little are somehow mature. That that is somehow a mark of maturity. Rather, it is the Christian who came up against trials and difficulty and suffering and persecution over and over and over again and counted it joy because he knew that God had designed that event to produce something in him, to make him more like Jesus Christ. And so that brings us then to the second idea that we find here in this text this morning. The first is that the Thessalonians received the word in much affliction. And in the, 
and then the joy with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then the second idea is that they imitated or they resembled Paul and Silas and Jesus. The Thessalonians, when they received the word with much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, but then if that's the foundation of this passage, then Paul starts out in verse 6. If you go back up to the beginning of verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The example of enduring in the midst of suffering came to the Thessalonians through the example of Paul, who were imitating Jesus Christ. The joy of the Holy Spirit in much affliction is first seen in Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, This is an instrument of torture and execution. The cross, an instrument of torture and execution, stands as a reminder that Jesus endured it for the joy that was set before him. And so, we like to say that we're followers of Jesus, but following Jesus means following him into suffering because of what Paul writes in Romans 8.17 when he says that we are In Christ, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. This oftentimes doesn't fit our vision of what it means to follow Jesus. Our vision of following Jesus does not always include crosses. It might include crosses that like hang around our necks or crosses that are really sterilized, but not bloody, brutal, instruments of torture crosses. It doesn't include the grave. The grave is a place that is representative of death. But Jesus Christ went to the grave. And we are commanded to follow him there as well. And by following him into these places, then we follow him into resurrection, into new life, into glory. Paul commends the Thessalonians because they became imitators of Jesus. But how do these new converts in Thessalonica How do these new converts to Christianity learn about imitating Jesus? These people never met Jesus. He was crucified maybe about a decade earlier, maybe two, 15 to 20 years earlier. But the people who were part of this church, who made up the church in Thessalonica, had never met Jesus. How would they understand what it was to follow him? what it was like to imitate him. They learned it through Paul and Silas among them. The church in Corinth received a letter from Paul, 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 11 of that letter, Paul wrote, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Again, another context, another situation where the, the believers in the church in Corinth, just south of Thessalonica, would have never met Jesus, would have never seen him face to face. How is it that they could become imitators of Jesus Christ? Faithful men, sharing their lives with them, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, enduring in suffering. This should come as no surprise to us. And we've said this before, but it, it this constantly bears itself out in Scripture, is that if you're a parent, especially a parent of young kids, or if you aspire to be a parent, or you have been a parent, uh, do as I say, not as I do parenting, bad strategy. It's a bad strategy. Your kids watch you, they imitate you, and you quickly begin to see sometimes your best qualities, but mostly your worst ones in them. Your kids watch you and imitate you. If you're respectful of others, your kids will be respectful of others. If you get angry easily, your kids probably will get angry easily. If you have a bad attitude every time something goes even a little bit wrong in your day-to-day, you'll find that your kids, when their plans are disrupted, also will quickly, quickly become frustrated. If your kids are acting in a way that you don't approve, the first place you should look is the mirror. I've learned this the hard way. Much of the Christian life is learned through imitating others who are imitating Jesus. Much of the Christian life is learned through those who are imitating Jesus. This is what we would consider to be discipleship. If you've been around Buffalo City Church, you know that our mission is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. But discipleship isn't just limited to reading your Bible together. Is it less than that? No, it is absolutely, that it absolutely is included in discipleship. Is discipleship praying together? Yes, of course it is. Is discipleship talking about the, and applying truths to your lives? Yes. But discipleship isn't limited to those things. And even I would argue that discipleship looks like time spent together, which is much larger than those things. You might dedicate in a few hours a month to those, those ideas, but the reality is that discipleship is faithful men and women living as visible examples to each other. Visible examples of what? Visible examples of Jesus Christ. I can give you a verbal definition of forgiveness, and I think many of you could do that as well in this room, but it needs to also be accompanied by observable acts of forgiveness. What good is it if I give you a verbal definition of forgiveness and then harbor bitterness and let that pour over out of me so that everyone can see? 
I can outline on a piece of paper how Paul tells husbands to love their wives in Ephesians chapter 5, but it also needs to be accompanied by observable acts of loving my wife. I can articulate the fundamental elements of the gospel, but it also needs to be accompanied by a life that is actively being transformed by the word of God. When we read what Paul writes here in verses 6 through 8, we must be convinced that our lives are designated to be spent for others. Prepositions are important. Now, I didn't say with, I said for. Spent for others. We must be convinced, as Paul and the Thessalonians are convinced, that our lives are designed to be spent for others. You cannot, we cannot live the Christian life in isolation. Every Christian in this room is, must be actively searching for someone to imitate, not just because they like the way that they do their hair or they think they have a cool job, but because that person imitates Jesus Christ. And every Christian in this room must be actively searching for someone to call to imitate them as they imitate Christ. What the Thessalonians learned about suffering, they learned by witnessing in the example that Paul and Silas put on display for them. In the, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, Paul and Silas endured suffering. And they became an example to the believers in Thessalonica. Friends, I want you to be convinced that this kind of discipleship is a fundamental part of the Christian life. Like again, Paul and the Thessalonians are here. If you struggle to count it all joy in the midst of suffering, the, the, the goal isn't to think harder. The goal is to pray fervently. God, would you bring someone into my life who I've seen counted all joy in the midst of their suffering. Would you show me someone in the body of Christ, someone in the local church who has suffered much and who, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, continues on trusting in Jesus when that person comes into your life. And friends, I'm convinced if you genuinely pray that prayer, there are some reasons why you wouldn't pray that prayer. One, because you just want to keep doing what you're doing. Two, because you believe that what you're, you're good. Things are just fine. I'm doing well. Or three, because you know that when that happens, when you get into life and when you start considering what it means to rejoice in suffering, that suffering might become something that you endure more. You've positioned yourself to grow. And so when we pray prayers like, God, would you grow us into Christ-likeness? Friends, you have to be fully aware that the way God is going to do that is by bringing difficulty into your life. That is how over and over and over again, that sort of prayer is answered. 
It's not just like an osmosis, like drip down, dew on the rose situation. It's like legitimately in the fire. And God in the fire produces in you through the Holy Spirit, produces in you the steadfastness, the endurance, the joy, the hope, the character, the maturity that he intends to bring about in you. God loves to give his children good gifts. And while you might not think in your mind right now suffering is a good gift, the things that come through it are in fact good gifts. And so, when someone, you find that person here, and I, they're here, God has equipped this body uniquely to minister to you. The person that you need to imitate as they imitate Jesus is here, or when you start praying that prayer, will show up. God loves to give good gifts to his children. When that person, when that becomes apparent, ask that person to spend time with you. Just spend time, get coffee, go golfing, build a shed. Ask them how they learn to count it all joy in the midst of their suffering. Ask about their prayer life, their Bible reading, how they approach following Jesus to the cross and to the grave. Ask them what the Lord is teaching them. Ask them about their relationships with other believers. I want to, this might be a limb, but you, you probably are facing the most suffering and affliction that you're facing includes other people and relationships that you have with them. How is it that those who have gone before you with the joy of the Holy Spirit have endured suffering at the hands of others in relationships? And how have they not grown bitter and frustrated and resentful? That is something that the Lord, only the Lord, can do in the, in the heart of men. Ask the, that person every question that you can think about the Christian life. And maybe they won't have an answer, but they're on a path to following Jesus as well and learning what it is to imitate Jesus as well. But when you've asked them all of your questions, then watch how they forgive, how they repent, how they hope, how they approach everyday tasks in faithfulness. Watch how they love others. Paul knew that the Thessalonians learned. He knew that they learned to have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their affliction because they became imitators of Paul and Silas because Paul and Silas were imitators of Jesus. This is a fundamental part of the Christian life. Finding men and women in your journey of following Jesus, who can imitate Christ to you so that you may become more like Jesus. And then, as you have faithfully followed Jesus Christ for years, as many of you have in this room, looking for men and women 
who you can say assuredly, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we have receiving, we have resembling, and now we have representing. So when I read those four passages out of Matthew and James and 1 Peter and Romans earlier, those all were talking about suffering in the life of the believer and how it was producing internal qualities in them. But as we look together at verse 7 in particular, look at that verse with me. The first two words there, so that, so that. When you see those two words in Scripture, you know that there is a, um, a result coming. What is the result that the Thessalonians became imitators of Paul and Silas and of Jesus? What is the result of their receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit? The result of it is so that they, the Thessalonians, would become an example. So that they themselves would become an example of suffering and having joy in the midst of it. The result of their receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit is that they became an example. They represented Christ. And Paul says that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is like a, these are provinces of Rome. The whole province of Macedonia and the adjacent province of Achaia. The Thessalonians became an example to the believers in these places. An example of Christ-like suffering in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said that, they, that it went even further than that in verse 8. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Everywhere. To the point that Paul and Silas, when they showed up and they said, let me tell you about the Thessalonians who received the word and immediately were persecuted for it. They said, now we've already heard. Thanks for sharing. We got the story already. Brothers and sisters, what Paul writes here should cause us to consider what we celebrate in the lives of other Christians. How can we encourage fellow Christians who are part of Buffalo City Church and who are not part of Buffalo City Church, who are in our city or in our state? The way that this passage says that we can provide an encouragement is an example of Christ-like suffering in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't sound as much fun as holding a big conference. It doesn't sound like as much fun as producing a, a music album, a worship music album. But it is the way that Paul says 
The Thessalonians became an example to believers all over the world. Friends, and it is a way that we, as a church, can become an example to read to believers in our lives. Christ-like suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When we suffer like Jesus suffered with the joy of the Holy Spirit, our encouragement to other believers will, in fact, grow. The Thessalonians received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators. They resembled Paul and Silas who resembled Christ. And then they represented Christ and the sufferings of Christ to all of those across their province and everywhere. That leads us to a conclusion, and then we'll turn our attention this morning to the Lord's table, which is set before us. Three things I want you to think about in conclusion this morning, implications of this text. The first is that Christians are to expect suffering. This world is full of suffering. The Thessalonians came, in the Thessalonians' case, it came as a result of receiving the word. Some of you, many of you in this room, have received affliction as a result of your faith. Whether it be in your school, college campus, it would be in your own home, or with family members and friends. Some of you are close to people who make your life very challenging because of what you say and what you believe. This is to be expected in the Christian life. Don't buy into the mentality that suffering should be foreign to the Christian. In the midst of suffering, pray that God would use it to accomplish his purposes in you. Friends, we don't pray that suffering would come upon us, but we pray that when it does, God would use it to accomplish his purposes in our lives. We're not some weird masochistic people, but we do know that when it does come to us, God intends to bring something about in us. We are Christ followers. We follow Jesus, and Jesus suffered, and therefore we are to expect suffering. The second implication of this text is that Christians are equipped to joyfully respond in suffering. Some suffering, for some of you, is brought on a result of your own personal action. Some of it is not. The Thessalonians confessed that Jesus is Lord in place of Caesar, and by doing so, they experienced suffering. But Sometimes suffering is just a result of living in a world that is still under the curse of sin. Whatever the case may be, Christians are equipped to, no matter what the source of the suffering is, Christians are equipped to joyfully respond in the midst of suffering. Paul is clear that joy comes from the Holy Spirit. This is the joy of the Holy Spirit. The of there is belonging to. The joy belongs to him, and he brings it to you as a gift. When you face suffering and you're tempted to grumble or complain or just give up, go to your heavenly Father in prayer and ask for the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy that belongs to the Holy Spirit is yours in Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all that God intends to produce in you and through your suffering. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind all that God intends to do and accomplish and the purposes that he has for you in your suffering. If you're thinking right now, and I hope that you are, if you're thinking right now, what is the joy of the Holy Spirit? That seems really ethereal and weird to me. This is the definition. Because sometimes we, what we do, before we get to the definition, sometimes what you do, I don't know what joy actually looks like in suffering. Do I have to prance around with a stupid smile on my face like some show pony and think and say, everything's great all of the time? When inside you're being eaten. Is that what the, that, that's not what Paul is saying. This is not the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Bible isn't telling you that you're just in some fake-it-till-you-make-it situation. Just put on a smile and someday you'll feel better. That's not what's going on. Rather, here's the definition. The joy of the Holy Spirit looks like remembering that your suffering is always intended by God to produce something in you. And not only produce something in you, but produce something in us as a body. As a group of people who come together under the banner of Jesus Christ, our suffering, your suffering individually, and whatever we suffer together as a church is intended to bring about fruit in us, internal in character and endurance and hope and steadfastness, and it's designed to increase and amplify our witness in the world around us like the Thessalonians. God has promised to use your suffering to bring about something in you and even through you. The joy of the Holy Spirit is a recognition that your suffering will never be wasted. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, who was brutally murdered on the mission field, writes about facing suffering in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. She writes, Just start thanking God in advance because no matter what is about to happen, you already know God is in charge. You're not adrift in a sea of chaos. And some of you here this morning have suffered intensely and immensely over the last year, two years, ten years. And you wonder this morning, am I adrift in a sea of chaos? And you're worn down. But God plans to and will use every hurtful word, every unjust accusation, every unexpected diagnosis, every difficult providence to bring about his purposes in your life. And he promises it. This is what the joy of the Holy Spirit looks like, resting trusting in the promise of God that he will bring about what he intends in you. The joy of the Holy Spirit transforms your perspective from something to be avoided to a gift from God. Your suffering is intended to bring about Christ's likeness in you and to make you a witness 
of who Jesus Christ is in the world around you. And therefore, we must regard it as a gift. We're equipped to joyfully respond in suffering. Final concluding point this morning, and then we'll move to the Lord's table, is that Christians' joy in the midst of suffering will again serve as a great encouragement to their brothers and sisters. When God's work is evident in your life, it is seen clearly by your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we, as a church, have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our suffering, it becomes a great witness. The transformative power of the gospel shines through. And others are strengthened in their faith and equipped to have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their own suffering. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering what the first step is, what is the first step to have the joy that Paul talks about here, the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering? you must know that the first step is to come to Jesus. That none of this comes to you apart from the person of Jesus Christ who freely offered himself for you. Those who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, submitting to him as Lord, have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to all those who come to Christ by faith. And so if you have not come to Christ by faith this morning, come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And the Holy Spirit will give you new life. And you will be equipped to have joy in the midst of suffering. The event that I speak to as we come to Christ or think about Jesus is portrayed before us this morning in the Lord's in the Lord's table. Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, so that we might spend eternity with him. Before us lie two elements, the bread and the juice, the bread representative of the body broken for us, the body that should have been ours. The sin of the world laid upon Jesus Christ Every individual in this room, their sin laid upon Jesus Christ so that, so that they might be forgiven. The juice representative of Christ's blood that washes us clean so that our sin goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to us, and we can stand before now, before a holy God. For those who have trusted Jesus, your hope in life and in death, is Christ and Christ alone. We declare that together when we come to the table this morning. We declare that we have no other hope, that there is no other name under heaven given among men amongst which we can be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, not Jesus and your good job. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no joy in the midst of suffering. There is no, nothing given to those who have not trusted Christ fully. And so as we approach the table this morning, we remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he, wrote, when he wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are making a declaration this morning. Friends, when you walk down to the front to the table, when you pick up the elements, when you take them back to your seat, when you partake in those elements, you are making a declaration. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns and your intent to follow him into that death in order that you might be raised with him. This act this morning, this ordinance that Jesus commands us to participate together in as a church is for believers only. If you're thinking to yourself, I don't know where I stand before Jesus Christ this morning, then this is, this, this is not for you. That's okay. Sit down. Think about what's happening. Think about what's been said this morning. Consider deeply. But don't approach the table. There is greater condemnation for those who approach the table in an unworthy manner, and that is not with the clothing that Jesus Christ provides. So, just sit back, reflect. No one's looking at you, no one's staring at you. Just take this time to reflect. Parents of young kids, we say this each time we take the Lord's Supper together, but if, if your kid has made a credible profession of faith, by all means invite them to participate together with you in the Lord's table. But if that is forthcoming, go ahead and use this again as another opportunity to share the gospel with them, to share the good news of what Jesus Christ did for them, and by faith they can come to him. You don't have to be a member at Buffalo City Church to participate in the Lord's Supper, but we would ask that you are, one, a believer, and that you regularly worship together uh, with a faith family that preaches the same gospel as we do, we do here. So I'm going to pray, and in a moment you can stand up and come forward, approach the table, uh, grab the elements, return to your seat when you're prepared in your own heart to receive the Lord's Supper. Um, go ahead and eat the bread and then drink the juice. We'll sing together. And we'll go, let me pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the truth that it brings to us. God, would you help us now? God, we know, we know full well that the suffering that comes uh, in this life is oftentimes out of the blue, feels unwelcomed. God leaves us in a position where we feel as though we are drowning and underwater. God, in those moments, in those moments, would you remind us of the example of faithful men and women who have endured suffering and affliction for the sake of Christ? Would you bring to mind those who have faithfully gone before us in joy, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that we might be encouraged. God, would you teach us now, in this time, what it means to suffer with the joy of the Holy Spirit, expecting fully, trusting fully that you will bring about your purposes in our life and in the life of Buffalo City Church. God, we trust you. God, we thank you for Jesus God, we together confess that we have no good apart from him, that it is only through him that we have eternal life. 
God, would our hearts be inclined to you and we'd be united as a body, even now as we approach the Lord's table together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.